Bibles to Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. I don't know if this mic is going to be too loud. You know, I'm a little bit louder than Drew, so you can do what you want with it. Let's say a brief prayer before we begin. Dear God, help us, Lord, to put away all distractions. We pray that you will calm our spirits and help us, Lord, to be attentive uh, at this time of reading your word and, and teaching your word, Lord. And we just pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us, Lord, to affect change where that change is needed. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And you can just leave your, your Bibles open because I'm going to be referencing some verses in this chapter. Uh, but to, get, to begin with, hell is an uncomfortable subject to talk about. It is not pleasant. Uh, to think about, and some think that we should avoid the topic altogether for that very reason. Uh, surprisingly, no one spoke more about hell than Jesus did. Jesus describes hell as a place of darkness, but he also compares it to a fiery furnace. The scriptures describe hell as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Some of the language that the Bible uses to describe hell is probably symbolic, but it points to a reality that is worse than anything that we can imagine. Thinking about hell can cause us some anxiety, and it probably should. It is hard to comprehend the idea or the concept of eternal punishment, where there is no end to the misery. It is a never-ending experience of punishment. Jesus said that hell is a place that God prepared for the devil and for his angels. The thought of this kind of suffering makes people so uncomfortable that they do not want to associate hell with God. How many times have you heard a, a well-meaning Christian say something like, well, God doesn't send people to hell. People choose to go there. Yeah, I get what they're saying. Uh, it's true that people refuse uh, to bow their knee to the Lord Jesus, which is the same thing as choosing hell is your eternal destination. And when I was young, I remember there were some rock bands out there who would sing about hell uh, like they were happy and they were celebrating uh, their final destruction. So I agree that, in a sense, people may choose to go there. They would rather go to hell than submit themselves to God. But at the same time, that does not get God off the hook. Not that God needs to be uh, 
owner off the hook for us, but I think people want a God that they can be comfortable with, not a God who might send someone to hell. God created this place called hell, and God destroys people in this place called hell, and that is exactly what our text says. After all, hell is a place of wrath. It is a place of final judgment. The Bible says that God judges both the righteous and the wicked. These themes, these themes of salvation and judgment are intertwined throughout the entire Bible. God rescues his allies and judges his enemies from Genesis to Revelation. The Apostle Paul says that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the whole world in righteousness. God is going to hold court. The whole world is going to be put on trial. You see, God has records. He has records of everything we've ever said, everything we've ever did, everything we've ever thought. And every unbeliever is going to have to take the stand. And once the unbeliever is called to stand trial, God will, will open the books. The unbeliever will have to hear an accurate account of all of his or her thoughts and deeds. There will be no refuting. There will be no defense. We find an account of this final courtroom scene in Revelation 20, 11 through 15. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Here we have a cosmic meltdown. Everything has been defiled. And there is no place for these things in the presence of God Almighty. The whole created order flees from God. And this awesome judge has two books. One is a book of justice. Everyone's deeds will be reviewed. The other is a book of grace. It is called the book of life. And in it are the names of all those who were purchased by the blood of the Lamb before the foundation of the world. The kingdoms of this world collude together against our God. And they persecute God's people. But there's going to come a day when their time is up. 
The prophet Isaiah wrote, For behold, the Lord will come in fire, and his chariots like the whirlwind, to render his anger in fury, and his rebuke with flames of fire. For by fire will the Lord enter into judgment, and by his sword with all flesh, and those slain by the Lord will be many. What terror. What horror. What dread. John Piper said that people think of hell as a disease. They compare it to a person who chooses to smoke cigarettes and ends up with lung cancer. It's just the natural consequence of bad choices. But this is not how scripture describes hell. Hell is a place where God judges sinners. Hell is a king expressing his holy wrath toward those who rejected his kingship. Remember the parable that Jesus told about the nobleman whose citizens hated him and refused to be ruled by him? And in the end, the nobleman said, But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to rule over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. My point is that it is God who cast his enemies into hell. It is just more than the natural consequence of bad choices. It is judgment. God who judges them and gives them a sentence of eternal punishment. It is God who pours out his wrath upon them. It is God who is to be feared. Unbelievers need to fear God. They need to fear God in order to motivate them to repentance so that they might be saved and not have to experience God's wrath. But believers also need to fear God, to motivate them to be faithful. In this case, in Matthew 10, Jesus was not talking to unbelievers. He was talking to his disciples, the apostles. And he had a job for them to do. They were to spread the word that the kingdom of God was at hand. God's Messiah had come. Uh, Jesus was about to send them on a mission, and he did not hide anything from them. He told them he was sending them, them out like sheep in the midst of wolves. He warned them that men would hand them over to synagogues where courts would accuse them of heresy and blasphemy, and they would beat them. He told them that men would drag them before governors and kings for punishment. He told them that friends and family would betray them. He told them that the world would hate them, persecute them, and possibly kill them. They were to go out on this mission, preaching the gospel, knowing that they may face death for it. The religious leaders would reject them. They would feel threatened by them and want to strike fear into them to cause them to shut up. Paul admitted that before his conversion, he would often beat and imprison those 
who followed the Lord. The first source of persecution that they experienced would come from the religious. In Matthew 10, 17, it says, Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts to flog you in their synagogues. They would beat them in the place, places of worship. Have you ever noticed that no other religion seems to offend people in the same way that Christianity does? All religions cannot be true. I know you see the bumper stickers that indicate we're all the same and just get along. But if one is true, it makes all competing views false. Christianity is exclusive. We all know that Jesus said that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and there is no other way to God. Christianity exalts God and not man. All men's religious efforts to please God are like filthy rags apart from Christ and his saving work. Christianity declares men to be sinners, to be depraved, criminals, lawbreakers, who are deserving of eternal punishment from God. Christianity says, no, you're not good enough to please God. Humans are not basically good. They are corrupt. They need cleansing. They need mercy. They need forgiveness. Jesus offends because he claims to be the only way for man to be at peace with God. Who did this offend the most? Did it offend the prostitutes the most? Did it offend the woman who had been divorced several times and was living with a man that she was not married to? Did it offend her the most? Did it offend a group of unsophisticated redneck fishermen the most? No, it offended the self-righteous religious leaders. The religious elite feared man, and they feared losing their prestigious positions. They wanted uh, people to think that they were uh, superior to them. They wanted the people's respect and admiration. And they didn't want to lose their place of influence in this world. So they were threatened by what they had to lose. They feared man, but they did not fear God. The second source of persecution that Jesus warned them about would come from the government. In Matthew 10, verse 18, And you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. God created government for our good, to order society. We need laws to protect the innocent and to punish the criminal, or else we have chaos. We have governments in order to protect our country from threat. Governments have an enormous amount of power over its people, and they can serve the people, and they can protect its citizens, or they can rule over them with an iron fist. 
Our founding fathers took great pains in writing the Constitution because they knew that when you give the government too much power, it spells trouble for the people. Tyrannical governments have been persecuting Christians for 2,000 years. Communist governments are dominated by an atheistic worldview. Communist countries have persecuted, imprisoned, and murdered millions of Christians throughout church history. It is illegal to convert to Christianity in many countries. No one can question Kim Jong-un's authority in North Korea based on the fact that he has absolute power. No one can question him or have any other allegiance. You try to escape. If you succeed, they just kill your family. In places like Vietnam, Christianity threatens cultural practices such as idol worship. And you can have a target on your back once your faith in Christ is discovered by others. Christianity is illegal in most Muslim countries, and it can mean a death sentence. In America, Christians are a threat to the immoral views held by those with the greatest power. Our government officials, many of them, pretend not to know the difference between a man and a woman. They pretend that they don't believe that abortion is murder when they know it is. They promote homosexuality, transgenderism, and all kinds of immoral practices. They put pornographic materials in our public schools. They've invited drag queens to lecture students. And I just read where the Air Force is having some event and there will be a drag queen there. Hormone therapy is offered to children in a vain attempt to change that child's gender. Our current administration is threatening to withhold federal school lunch money to, from states and school districts that do not pass transgender non-discrimination policies. The latest little trick that I've heard is we're all now white nationalists. That's the new label being placed upon Christians. A recent article by CNN says that Christianity is, a, is threatening American democracy. And I'm going to quote from an article in USA Today. The federal government, in our opinion, has never taken the threat of far-right religious extremists as seriously as they have Muslim extremists, who are far fewer. It's clever. We know what they're doing. They don't have to fear me. I'm not going to do anything to them but they need to fear my God. We all know where this is going, and I don't know how long it's going to take for it to come to fruition, but if we don't get these people that are currently in here out, it's going to come sooner than later. Corrupt governments fear their people, and they fear Christians, but they do not fear God. The setting for our text today is the disciples had received a commission from the Lord to preach Christ. The obstacle they faced was imminent persecution. Whether they remained faithful or caved under pressure would depend on who they feared the most. Did they fear God or did they fear man? Proverbs 29:25 says, 
The fear of man is a snare. It's a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. The fear of man replaces the fear of God. And it puts us on a pathway to foolishness. The fear of man can immobilize us. It can silence us when we should speak. It can paralyze us when we should act. So we have to decide whose approval are we seeking. Is it man's approval or is it God's approval? Trusting man feels pretty safe. It feels safe to go with the flow. It feels safe to avoid conversations that may be upsetting to some. The problem is that it is never safe to disobey God. I can remember uh, at a particular job I had, everyone was often huddled up in a corner and, and someone would start a discussion. Lots of people hanging around talking when we weren't working. Um, and sometimes I was very uncomfortable and I feared rejection when I felt that I needed, believed that I needed to speak about Christ and sometimes I forced myself to in spite of my fear. But I noticed that some of these men that I knew they went to church every Sunday, they would distance themselves from a serious conversation when spiritual matters came up. They seemed like the tough guys. They only talked about football, baseball, NASCAR. But I began to realize that they were actually afraid of the opinions of other men. They didn't want anyone to tag the religious nut label on them. When we care more about the opinion of man than we do the opinion of God, that is sin. And we need to repent of it. And actually, it's really pathetic when you think about it. What is puny man and his opinion? The disciples had more to fear than just being made fun of. Jesus said, do not fear those who kill the body. They were facing the threat of death. In Matthew 10, 21 through 22, it says, Brother will deliver up brother over to death and father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Enduring to the end or perseverance is a mark of a genuine Christian. Charles Spurgeon said that perseverance is the target of all of our spiritual enemies. The world doesn't mind a little bit of Christianity light. It's okay with a worldly church that accepts the the sinful practices of our culture. It's okay with a church that does not call them to repentance. God ordained suffering, trials, and persecution for these 12 apostles. In Matthew 10, 29 through 31, he reminds the apostles that even their suffering is under God's providence. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the Father? 
but even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. God commanded his disciples to fear him, and then he admonishes them to put their trust in him. God is to be feared, and he is to be trusted. Man has limited authority over us, but God has unlimited authority. Man has a limited ability to punish us, but God has an unlimited ability to punish us. Man can kill the body, but he cannot kill the soul. God can do both. And man cannot lay a hand on us unless God permits it. Sparrows do not fall to the ground apart from God's providence, and we will not suffer anything that God has not already determined. It seems like uh, Jesus is contradicting himself here when he says that we're, we are to fear God and we are also to trust God at the same time, but it is not a contradiction. Uh, many explain that the fear that we should have should be like a filial fear, like a great respect for our earthly fathers. Uh, I agree with that to some extent. Uh, there are two types of fear. Uh, one is dread and terror. And the other is reverence and respect. What is the essence of biblical piety? Is it not to have a contrite and humble spirit that trembles at God's word? The essence of impiety is to have no fear for God. Proverbs 9.10 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Proverbs 1.7 says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Luke 1.50 says his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Now, I do not believe that God wants his people to live in constant anxiety, worrying that he may send them to hell. In fact, Jesus doesn't tell his disciples that they should fear hell. He tells them to fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I don't believe that Christians should fear losing their salvation. However, I think that we should contemplate what our fate would have been had God not shown us mercy. Sin is really, really bad or there would be no place like hell. The reason we think hell is so unfair is because we do not understand the severity of our sin. Sin is really bad because of the greatness of the one whom is offended. When we think about the times that we have outright ignored God, we should tremble. When we think about the times that we gave in to temptation, knowing full well how much it, dis it displeased God, we should have a sense of fear. When we think about the possibility of denying Christ, we should shudder. Are we not commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling? 
a proper fear of God will get you running toward Christ. Our God is a consuming fire, but when we belong to his son, his consuming fire is directed toward our enemies. When I think of God's fury towards sinners, I am able to have compassion on the worst of my enemies. As much as I don't like some people, and some people are not likable, I don't want anyone to fall under God's judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What would have happened to you? What would have happened to me if God had left us in a state of unbelief? It's terrible to think about. But thinking about it makes us all the more grateful. The fear of man and of what man can say about you or what man can do to you is a gigantic obstacle to doing the will of God. So how do you overcome the fear of man? You learn to fear the Lord. Contemplate the greatness of God. Think about how powerful he is. Think about the things he has created. He has created a sun that never burns out. Think about his creation. Think about his law. His holiness. Think about his judgments. And think about his wrath. When we have a proper view of God and we fear him more than any man, more than any temporary suffering that we might experience in this life, then there is nothing that can keep us from serving him faithfully. Let's bow our heads. Dear God, our Father, Help us, God, to understand that hell is what we deserve. Hell is the just reward for committing treason against our Creator. And if anyone here today might be resisting you, might be resisting your rule over their life, we beg you to open their eyes before it is too late. And for those who, for those who know the Lord, Help us, Lord, to contemplate what could have been had you not shown us mercy. Help us, Lord, to be more grateful that you have shown us mercy. Help us, Lord, to fear you and to not fear man, that we may live faithful lives enduring to the end.